WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. How would you define freedom? How do I define freedom? To be able to be in my own body in any space at any time. An extension of my ancestors, like what they didn't have for freedom, I do wholeheartedly, I multiply it to honor them. Oh my gosh, that's heavy. As feeling like your obligation is to your own happiness and well-being. As the ability to do what you want to do, but not in a way that would hurt somebody else. For me, it's uh, through dance. As to be accepted for who you truly are and no one's saying anything about it. As a soul that is free from suffering. As no limitations put upon a person. As being able to speak without permission. It shouldn't be, can I? It is what it is. I woke up, I'm free. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. Raul Peck has led quite the life. He's been a global citizen from the Congo to Germany to the U.S. He served as Minister of Culture for Haiti, which is his home country. And he has made several films that challenge viewers to face hard truths about our societies. In 2017, his documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, was nominated for an Academy Award. The film is a lyrical journey into the mind of James Baldwin, and a book that Baldwin pitched to his editor but never actually wrote. The film won widespread acclaim, but Raoul Peck sees it as part of a suite of documentary work in which he's exploring how injustice and frankly, just cruelty in American history, live in the present tense of people's lives. This past fall, Peck released his latest film in that loose collection, a film called Silver Dollar Road. It tells the story of a Black family in North Carolina and their harrowing struggle to hold on to land they owned since emancipation. The film is adapted from an investigation published in The New Yorker. The executive producer of our own show, Andre Robert Lee is also a documentary filmmaker, and Raul Peck is one of his heroes. So Andre sat down with him to talk shop. Raul, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. We're in a moment right now where there's an effort to suppress the kind of history you tell in your films. Are you explicitly trying to challenge that with your work? Well, uh, <laughs> my work is like, I feel like we should have like truckloads full of material and I feel like I just have a bucket to carry every week because 
we have so many stories that we should be telling. And, you know, our entering the film industry is a very uh, a modern uh, uh, thing. Uh, we came in very late in the picture. When I do research for, for about the last two centuries, everything I bumped in are, are photos from the colonizers, wherever I look. So I have, in my work, find a way to deconstruct them and use them to tell my own stories. At the same time, I have to create something new and not getting bogged down in the same narrative. You know, so we have to be sociologists, we have to be historian, <laughs> and we have to be storyteller at the same time. <laughs> I came to cinema not because I wanted to be in the movie industry. I came to cinema from a political standpoint, a way to get a hold of, of, of my own history, my own stories, mm -hmm. and be able to construct something uh, different and give to this generation and the next generation the weapons for their own fight. So your new documentary, Silver Dollar Road, expands on a 2019 ProPublica article co-published with The New Yorker. The article, like your documentary, follows the Reels family in their battle to keep ownership of their land. How did you first come across that story? Well, I was approached by ProPublica and uh, Amazon Production, and as well uh, Juvie Production, which is uh, Viola Davis and Julius Tennant uh, production company, because they were working on the scripted version of the story. And they approached me to be an executive producer on the documentary. After reading the article and some of the documentation, uh, I met the family and I realized this is a film that, that I should make. The story is so strong and, and I could see how to make it very clearly. And I also could see how I could attach it to my two last film, you know, I Am Not Your Negro and Exterminate All the Brutes. So for me, it became like a sort of trilogy where this last uh, portion of the trilogy is much more personal, much more raw, because it's a real family that is involved in a, in a decades-long uh, uh, fight. And that's how, you know, the whole, the whole story came along. The whole story began more than 100 years ago when a black man named Mitchell Reels bought what was then undesirable coastal property in Beaufort, North Carolina. The 20th century is full of stories of Southern black families acquiring unwanted land, turning it into something for themselves, and then losing it to theft and violence and legal trickery. The Reels kept their land through all of that history, or so they thought. Silver Dollar Road tells the story of how developers actually laid claim to this now valuable waterfront property and what happened when Mitchell Reels' great-grandsons simply refused to leave. The great-grandsons fought a complicated legal battle that landed them in jail for eight years on a contempt of court charge. It's incredible. I'll let people get the whole story in the film itself, 
But would you say the story of the Reels family is actually part of a much broader history about land and racism that you want people to understand? Well, uh, if we see it on an historical level, after the end of slavery, or let's say the official end of slavery, um, black uh, uh, people were promised land, you know, the famous 40 acres and a mule, and um, which never happened. And, uh, and black people wanted to, to build a new life for themselves. You know, having land is the key to come to some sort of, of economical wealth. And, and they were not asking for much. They said, either give me land uh, or, you know, we'll find ours. And this is what a lot of them did. They bought what was accessible for them, usually uh, swamp lands and coastal land uh, that are very sandy. And they make the land work for them. They, they really invest in that land. They worked uh, the land hard. And after a few years, they start earning returns. And that, in turn, created jealousy. That's when the whole trouble started. We used to think that lynching was primarily about racism. It started about property. It was the former enslaved uh, uh, basically start doing something for themselves. And, and uh, when other white, poor white, didn't see uh, the same thing for themselves. And, and uh, they start, uh, you know, basically a terrorist act, killings, burning down, pressuring black to leave their land. And, and so to come back to the Reels family, the, the uh, patriarch, Elijah Real had bought 75 acres along Silver Dollar Road uh, uh, on, to the coast. And at one point, he lost it because of tax uh, back uh, uh, payments. And his brother bought it. And uh, his brother died, you know, and that's one of the major problems, in particular mm -hmm. in the South, is that black families did not trust the justice system. And so they didn't write a will, thinking that when you leave your property to the whole family, it's more secure. Mm -hmm. But in mm -hmm. fact, it's the contrary. You know, you don't have really uh, uh, deeds. You don't have uh, the whole paperwork that you need. And you don't have access from uh, government help. Mm -hmm. You mentioned 40 acres and a mule in the film and tell the story of that promise, which was never kept. There's a meeting between General Sherman and 20 Black ministers in Savannah, Georgia. Tell us a bit more about that actual meeting for what you discovered with your research. There was several of them, but uh, Sherman asked the reverend, what do you want? What can we do? And they basically, as any normal human being would say, you know, well, we need land to be able to make our own living. We don't want to work for anybody else, and we are capable and able to make our own fortune and just make land available to us, as it has been for all the pioneers, all the, you know, the Homestead Act, etc. But they, they were never giving that land. So the, the whole story from the get-go was totally a bias. And when you hear even today, you know, the thing about pulling yourself with your own bootstrap, if it wasn't so dramatic, it would be really uh, uh, ironic and, and, and funny 
black people and indigenous people never were able to really profit from land. Mm -hmm. They never had the head start like everybody else. And we, we are still paying that today. And I think you, you, you did that so well, really bringing forward that story and digging deep into the history. I, I remember watching that and just jumping off the, out of my seat and yelling at the screen like, yes, yes. I was once at a screening of one of my films and someone said, why do you do this work? Documentaries don't pay a lot of money. And I said this and I say it often, I do it for very selfish reasons so I can sleep better at night. Well, uh, j just maybe just a parenthesis to that, you know, like the same when, when you ask the same question to Baldwin, he says, why are you doing this? He said, because I have no choice. Mm -hmm. And that's how I see my work and you probably see yours as well. Mm -hmm. You know, we have no choice. We need to take a break. We'll be back with more of this conversation between documentary filmmaker Raul Peck and our executive producer, Andre Robert Lee. Raul Peck's latest documentary is called Silver Dollar Road. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Stay with us. WNYC Studios is supported by Wondery's new podcast, Black History for Real, introducing you to the most overlooked black history makers you should already know about. Historical tea is the hottest and it pours the best. Hosted by Francesca Ramsey and Conscious Lee. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on 2.5 or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting 129. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Do you ever feel like there's nothing new in the news? You know, like there are urgent things happening in the world, but all you hear is noise. That's where What Next comes in, a daily news show we love from Slate. They tell you the stories you haven't heard before or a different side to the stories you thought you already knew. Join host Mary Harris every day as she cuts through the noise so that together we can all figure out what next. Follow and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. This week, our own executive producer, Andre Robert Lee, is in conversation with documentary filmmaker Raul Peck. Peck is best known for his 2017 Oscar-nominated rumination on the work of James Baldwin called I Am Not Your Negro. His latest film is called Silver Dollar Road. It's the story of a Black family's harrowing decades-long fight to keep ownership of land they acquired generations ago in North Carolina. And a big part of this story is the fact that in many Southern Black families, property has been passed down communally, meaning without a will. And that's precisely what made the land vulnerable to legal theft. Here's Andre again. Do you have a will, Raul? Uh, at my age, I should. <laughs> <laughs> I've been scribbling stuff for like at least the last 10 years, but never managed to really finish something. I do have 
a few properties in Haiti, which is my home country, because I understand what lands mean because my father inherited some land from my grandmother. And when I started going more often to Haiti, starting in around 86, after the end of the dictatorship, one of the first things I did is go with my father everywhere he had a piece of land and see how it was. It was a sort of, you know, getting back my own history and having him tell me the story of that land. He was an agronomist, so I come from a family of people who are close to land. He was very uh, clear in matter of papers, etc., and I just start to take it from him. For me, it's important. It's like a family history. So I really understand what it means. And so my personal story is, is also linked to that. I asked the wheel question because I, as I listened, I thought about that myself. And I think about, we're, we see major cases in the world right now, some pretty famous folks who left, left this world without wheels. And I always say to folks, it's more complicated. It's not just someone's lazy. You know, it's much more complicated than that. And I think that we often talk about the generational information and behavior that we inherit. Um, I don't have a will either, which I've been yeah, thinking about, yeah, especially yeah. after watching well, this movie. Well, it, it's, it's a good sign too, because it means we don't have that much to leave <laughs> behind. <laughs> because we are that, document- that's the reality too. The core problem is that uh, minorities, in particular black minorities, were never able to accumulate wealth and to pass it on. Mm-hmm. That, that was a, 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 an incredible, difficult process. Mm-hmm. The, the numbers is, is staggering. Like from 1920 to, I think, 1997, black landowner lost 90% of their properties, 90%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, I think the last evaluation was the equivalent of 356 billion. Yeah. So you imagine the, this wealth gap, mm-hmm. you know? So it explains everything else. What's it really, it really does. And by the way, it's not at all complex. Each person should learn that in school. You have people who came from Europe who stole land from the indigenous people, and then took other people and merchandised them to make them work on the land. Mm-hmm. And then when everybody got wealth, you tell the others, well, you still can have access to the wealth. And then later you complain about them that they are lazy, that they are no good, and that they don't know how to work. Mm-hmm. When they create that wealth for you, they create that wealth for you. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about Black joy. I want to talk about the ways in which you brought that idea into Silver Dollar Road. There's an opening scene at the barbecue with the matriarch of the Reels family. Her name is Gertrude. Tell me about why you opened the film with that scene. That was something I knew I had to do. I didn't want to make a film about victims. 
I don't want to make a film about sorrow or any kind of regret. Of course, uh, uh, people are angry watching the film at times, but they also laugh. They also <laughs> cry, but not because there is some weird story, but because it's us, it's our families. In Gertrude, I see my own grandmother. The film started by you connecting to the family. I wanted to show them as human beings first. The, the, the land stealing is just a moment of their life. It doesn't determine who they are. Who they are is what they have done to that uh, land, with that land, is how they have created a family, how they have created a culture, how they have built a community. And I wanted to show that first. Because we, we have a way to watch uh, movies about ourselves from the uh, point of view of victims or, or problems. The problem is exterior to who we are. And to come back to Baldwin, Baldwin say, I don't wake up and look at myself in the mirror and say, oh my God, I'm black and there are problems. There is No, it comes from the exterior. And he turned the, 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 the mirror toward the one that look at us a certain way and say, I think the problem is with you, not with me. I can live without you. I don't need your racism. I don't need anything from you. I just need everything that everybody else had. Mm -hmm. I want the same chances. I want my children to go to the same schools with the best teacher. I want to have access to bank credit like everybody else. I'm not asking for privilege. I just want what belongs to me as a citizen because I created that wealth. So I don't have to beg for anything, you know? So it's important to state the film in that context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've answered one of my big questions of how do you show up in the film? And I think you just explained it right there. When I, when I saw Gertrude, I saw my grandmother also. And when she's sitting in that chair out the window, I was thinking, I can't wait till I'm Sunday sitting in my chair looking out the window like that. Well, exactly, um, exactly. Um, you had many people as part of your story. You had Miss Gertrude, you had Kim, you had Mamie, Melvin, Lee Curtis, and all these people were what I used to call characters in a movie, but I had a Native person say to me, don't call me a character. I'm, I'll be a participant. I'm a human being. <laughs> so with all these participants in your movie, are you still in touch with them? Have you built a relationship? I always make sure that um, I stay in contact with uh, all the the participants and usually they become friends. You know, the way I made this movie, you can see there is no ending. There is no Hollywood ending where you say, okay, now I saw a story, it's finished. We know who the bad guys are and the, the good guys are and I can go home. I just consume a, a nice story. No, uh, the life of the family continue. There is a party at the beginning. There is a party at the, at the end, but there are trauma as well, but it's part of life and the fight continue. So it's the same. My relationship is like when I work with people like this, I can't fake it. I'm not a, a mercenary. You know, sometimes some professional people say, well, I can go anywhere and work and then go out. No, I can't do that. In order to find the right emotion, in order, in order to find some sort of truth 
or, or truthful moments, you need to be real. You are asking people to trust you. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't fake. Yes, open their lives to you. And and so even if it's more work to keep the link with so many people on so many different territories, it's key part of the work I do. And by the way, we we are working with them in making sure that the rest of the land doesn't become a problem as well. Uh, it's a good occasion to say the family have also opened a GoFundMe page Hmm. So uh, go to silverdollarroad.com. I think there is a link to that. And we make sure that they have a a group of lawyers that works with them to make sure the rest of the land is secure, to work on different scenarios about what to do to make that that land economical for them, for their livelihood, uh, etc. We can't just turn our back. And the same way, it's important for me, I usually say, a film for me is the beginning of something, not the end. I'm not making consumer good. I'm not making a product. I'm making a tool. And I can say that for all my films, they are tools for actions. Yeah, that, that's, that's phenomenal. I, I, I completely agree with that. I, like you, have the longest time said my films are, they are tools for action. Yes. Let's, let's change this world. And there's a way for us to bring this forward. And ask people, show up and think about where your heart and your mind meet and decide how you will go forward from this moment. Yeah. Um, so and, thank and, you so and, much and for still, And make sure, that's that. what I, I make sure that it's still a film. It's not a, a propaganda instrument. It's a film that you can watch Silver Dollar Road several times because yeah. I'm telling a story. And you get into the, the story each time. You can watch it several times and you would see a different film right. because you're, 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 you're a part of, yeah. of making the film as well. Yeah. You know, I want to ask you about something I heard you say a while ago about one of your previous films. You said this following quotation. As writers, creators, and filmmakers, we have no choice than to reflect on societies and provide knowledge and challenges in addition to mere entertainment. And as artists, we need to break the limits of our art. Tell me more about that. Uh, I told you how I came to filmmaking from the political angle. Uh, and, and political in the sense that uh, I am a citizen of wherever I was. I left Haiti when I was uh, eight. I went to Congo and I, was, I felt Congolese. I grew up with my Congolese friend. When I went to France, well, I fought for injustice in France. And when I went to Germany, the same. I was in the streets uh, protesting, you know, Reagan wanting to to put missile uh, in Germany. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and in New York, it's the same. My father, my older brother went to Vietnam. So we engage in whatever the fight is. So... Uh, so I always saw my my what I do as part of being a citizen, and we cannot just look at ourselves and just I just want to make a living for myself. No, my happiness depends on the happiness of everybody else. I cannot be happy if I have tons of money and my little thing and everything else outside of me. I can see the drama, I can see the poverty, I can see the homeless, I can see a lot of things. So for me, the work that we do is, being an artist is a privilege. 
Yes. Whereas in, in the US, many times people see art as a business, mm. in particular cinema as a business, it's entertainment. And most of the time, whether they are conscious of it or not, entertainment is like, well, we have to make people happy and it doesn't have to do with reality. It's like a dream, a dreamland. Uh, and I never saw a contradiction of making entertainment and content that makes sense. There are many la layers of, of film that can be made. And I see the riches of cinema throughout the world, African cinema, Asian cinema, Latin American cinema. I grew up with those cinemas. So I was never brainwashed by Hollywood. I take from Hollywood some of the skills. I take the way uh, you do certain storytelling, but I usually break that structure, nice. that famous three-act structure that at the end of a film leaves you like in a world uh, that is uh, good, you know? You usually decide that there is one bad guy. Like if we talk about police brutality, it's like there are some bad policemen, but it's not a structural problem. That's the way Hollywood operate, mm -hmm. it's uh, st uh, storytelling. That's why in Silver Dollar Road, it's important for me to show the structure of all this. It's not just the real family, but it's the structure and how even the real family or somebody like Mamie analyze it. Right. When she said, right. by example, you know, what are they going to do with us? Black people, she started to say black people, and then she corrected herself. She said, right. with us poor people, mm. she gets it. Mm -hmm. She understands how it works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's much more about class than about race. We are uh, uh, poisoned by the race conversation right. that we, of course, need to have all the time. Right. But that's not the center battle. That's why I made Exterminate All the Brutes to go to the roots of that story so that nobody can say, I didn't know. I've always noticed with your work, your work is very existential. It's very um, deep in philosophy, lots of thought and um, attention to exploring who we are. And I feel like I saw you sort of go through an existential moment talking about how we exist in this world, looking at Baldwin as Black people and, make, and do our best to keep the exterior world from corrupting who we are truly. Um, we, we talk a lot about on this show about what black freedom is. And I wanna posit that freedom is a multi-dimensional concept. And I wanna know what you think it is. How is freedom experienced? Well, that's a tough question, especially because today the word is used so improperly. Yes. You know, like freedom not to be vaccinated. Right. What is that? What kind of freedom? Or my freedom go over everything else. But they forget your freedom stop where the freedom of the others uh, start. The word freedom was used in this country when millions of people were enslaved. So we need to pause about the use of that word. It's always a matter of context, of historical context, political context. There is not such a thing as freedom per se, you know? And th there are all sorts of freedom as well, but unfortunately I think the word today 
is insufficient to deal with the problems we are dealing with today. A lot of people think, in fact, of personal freedom, not a collective freedom. And that's a different ballgame. I want to thank you, Raul Peck, for joining us today. It's truly an honor to spend some time with you. Your work means so much to so many of us. Thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you for the invitation. Thank you again. It was nice talking to you. That was documentary filmmaker Raul Peck in conversation with our executive producer, Andre Robert Lee. Raul Peck's latest film, Silver Dollar Road, is streaming now on Amazon Prime. Coming up, 2023 marked the 50-year anniversary of an infamous encounter between New Jersey state troopers and a group of Black activists that ended in deadly gunfire. How Asada Shakur became an icon to many and an enduring political villain to others. That's next. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. On this show, we've had several conversations about guns and fear. There is a recurring theme in stories about anti-Black violence, whether it's the kind of police violence that killed George Floyd or the vigilante violence that killed Ralph Yarl. Over and over, we hear about a deep, irrational fear of Blackness. But in our conversation last week, we also talked about the fact that at points in our history— Black people have responded to this fear by arming ourselves as well. For as long as Black people have been in these United States, there have been thinkers and leaders and movements saying, hey, you know, at minimum, we have got to defend ourselves against this madness. We need guns too. The outcome has been complicated. And this week, we're thinking about one particularly complicated story in the history of Black self-defense movements. Fifty years ago, in April 1973, three Black activists were pulled over by state troopers on the New Jersey Turnpike. Tragically, guns were fired and people were killed. In the aftermath, which we have to say is ongoing, really, one of the Black activists involved, Asada Shakur, became a cultural icon to many— and an enduring political villain for others. Nancy Solomon and Tracy Hunt have been looking at this moment in our history and at the many unanswered questions it raises. And they're going to share their reporting with us. Nancy sets the scene. We start with what we know about that night. On May 2nd, 1973... Shakur and two other members of the Black Liberation Army are driving a 65 Pontiac south on the New Jersey Turnpike. State Trooper James Harper stops them for a broken tail light. Another state trooper, Warner Forrester, backs him up. Shots are fired. The passenger in the back seat is fatally wounded, and the trooper, Warner Forrester, is also killed. Asada Shakur and the second trooper are injured. I was just just ready to go to bed at call about 11 o'clock. We had a shooting of a trooper on a turnpike, Jim. You have to come out here right away. 
James Challender is a retired New Jersey State Police detective. He heads out to the turnpike immediately and finds a bullet-ridden car abandoned alongside the road. The back window is shot out. As I got out of my car, I walked into the weeds, and there was a black man laying there with a a state police gun under his uh, body. Zaid Shakur, the passenger who'd been in the back seat of the car, lay there dead. Another state police detective was there, and next thing you know, we said, there she is in the woods. And we came and we arrested Joanne Chesimar. She had been shot. She was screaming in pain and everything. Challenger says he went with her to the hospital and processed the physical evidence there. There was only one person in that shooting scenario that had AB negative blood, and that was Werner Forrester. That came to be an important factor in the case because part of Chesimard's clothing, especially her socks, were saturated with AB negative blood, which was Werner's blood. Asada tells a different story. She says her friend driving the car got out to present his ID to one trooper. The other officer came to her window on the passenger side. He asked her where they were going, and then suddenly told her to put her hands where he could see them. He had a gun in my face, and I put my hands out like this. And in uh, a matter of seconds. I was shot. I mean, it was just, it was like a nightmare. It was like... Asada was just 25 years old. And for me, the big question is, how did she even end up in that car on the New Jersey Turnpike? What were the forces that put her on that path? Asada was born Joanne Byron in 1947. She was an only child, and she grew up in Queens with her mother. After high school, she worked a few office jobs, got married, and became Joanne Chesimard. And it's at Manhattan Community College that she meets Black activists for the very first time. And it was like an awakening. Here were these Black people, and they were talking about um, dashikis in Africa. And, I mean, it just was like, it made me feel alive. She got involved in student government and community organizing. During this time, the Black Panther Party is gaining momentum in Oakland. They cut a striking image. Black leather jackets, Black berets, and guns. They said they carried guns to protect their community from the police. One of the founders of the Black Panthers, Eldridge Cleaver, explained they had a 10-point program for improving the lives of Black people. We um, wanted an end to uh, police brutality and the murder of Black people by the police. That was point number seven. It turned out that we really didn't have time for anything but point number seven. When the Black Panthers set up in New York City, Asada joined them. She volunteered with the Free Breakfast Program and worked on several education projects. And immediately, they were under surveillance by the police department and COINTELPRO, an FBI program that infiltrated, disrupted, and attacked civil rights organizations. The police killed Fred Hampton, a leader in Chicago, and the NYPD arrested 21 Black Panthers in New York. Asada left the Panthers and formed the Black Liberation Army, a group that believed it should fight violence with violence. During this period, her apartment was raided by the police, and she disappeared underground. Now, the FBI carried out a campaign targeting 
not only the Black Panther Party. They targeted SCLC. They targeted Martin Luther King. Lennox Hines, a longtime attorney for Asada Shakur, argues that her story must be understood as part of an overall attack against the civil rights movement. He spoke on the news show Democracy Now! in 2013. They targeted Harry Belafonte. They targeted Ithacate. They targeted anyone who supported the struggle for civil rights that they considered to be dangerous. It is in that context we need to look at what happened on the New Jersey Turnpike in 1973. At that time, the NYPD suspected her in several bank robberies and the attempted murder of two police officers. After her capture, she was found innocent of the robberies and the attempted murder charges were dismissed by a judge for lack of evidence. Not so in New Jersey. As far as the state police and prosecutors were concerned, when they found Asada shot by the side of the turnpike, they had Werner Forrester's killer. And they had a trooper who survived the shooting as their key witness. In 1977, I was convicted in a trial that can only be described as a legal lynching. It was an all-white jury, and she was sentenced to life plus 33 years. Good evening. Joanne Chesimard, who is serving a life sentence for the murder of a New Jersey State trooper, escaped from the Clinton Women's Prison today. At about 3 o'clock this afternoon, two armed men managed to walk right into the prison, and they got Joanne Chesimard out. Chesimard and her accomplices took two guards hostage and commandeered a prison van. They quickly abandoned the van and released the guards. I escaped. It was a clean escape. No one was hurt. Uh, I planned it as well as I could plan it, and that's all I got to say about it. Asada surfaced in Cuba just a few years later. In a TV interview with the journalist Gil Noble, Asada says she didn't even have Castro's permission before arriving. I came, and I said, well, here I am. Now y'all got to make a decision, and you wow. can you know, you can't call them. Uh, hi, can I come down? <laughs> <laughs> that was impossible. She was granted political asylum, and in 1987, she released her book, Asada, an Autobiography. More than half a million copies have been sold, and it has inspired several generations of Black women. I read her book when it first came out, and for me, it was just transformative. Donna Merch is an associate professor of history at Rutgers University. You know, I'd gone to very conservative Catholic schools in western Pennsylvania. I didn't have a black teacher until I went to college. And Asada, in the late 1980s, for me, opened up a whole different way to understand black liberation. It was the middle of President Ronald Reagan's second term, and the promises of the civil rights movement had yet to materialize. A third of black people are living under the poverty line. Mm. You had the crack crisis, the war on drugs. Mm. So it was a really painful time. In the midst of all that, she found Asada Shakur. Her conviction and then incarceration and her own refusal to give in, she did the impossible, Mm. which is to escape the prison system in the United States and to become a political exile who retains her voice in Cuba. She's literally a symbol of liberation. Merch says that's why we're still talking about her. She wrote the book, Asada Taught Me, 
about how current-day Black activists are trying to continue her legacy. So many of the different organizations in Black Lives Matter, they start their presentations or they start their meetings with a poem from Asada. It is our duty to fight for freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and protect one another. We have nothing to lose but our chains. But Asada's status as a hero is a painful subject for many in New Jersey who believe she escaped justice. And nowhere is that more true than state police headquarters in Trenton. When I met with the retired trooper, James Challender, he gave me a tour. There's a plaza with the names of troopers engraved on bricks, historic relics like an old police car, and they've created a small museum. The Hall of Honor, a long corridor with photos of every trooper who's died in the line of duty. There are a lot of them. Bobby Miranda, he was killed on the turnpike. Tommy Dawson, who was a narcotics detective, got killed in a car accident. There's Phil LaMonica, he was killed by the uh, terrorists. Oh my God, all these guys. And here's Werner Forrester. Werner Forrester is the trooper who died that night in 1973. Challenger remembers the scene at the hospital when Forrester's wife, Rosa, arrived. She's screaming. I can still see her screaming today. I couldn't stop her. It's an affront to Challenger, and the state police more broadly, that the Cuban government hasn't been forced to turn over Asada to serve out her sentence. No one really made an effort to get her back. No one wanted to go that extra mile to get her back. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Of this whole case, besides the loss of Forrester and his, his family and all that, I'm talking about politically speaking, that's the thing that bothers me the most. I know, for lack of a better word, the juice they have, if they want to use it, they can get you back. But the state troopers have been successful in making it a potent political issue. Turn a cop killer, Joanne Chesimard. Joanne Chesimard in the last of the cop killer, Joanne Chesimard. So this is where the standoff remains. And the issues Asada Shakur was fighting for haven't been resolved. Consider an incident on the very same New Jersey turnpike, 25 years later, involving state troopers. The state paid $13 million in a racial profiling lawsuit to four minority men. The men were targeted and stopped on the turnpike by two white state troopers. Moments later, three of them were shot multiple times. It was 1998 and they were headed to a college basketball tryout. When they were pulled over, their car wasn't put all the way in park, so it slid back and bumped the trooper's car. In an interview with News 12 New Jersey, one of the men in the car, Danny Reyes, tells what happened next. I was in the front passenger, so he he took his baton out and just breaks the window with his baton. Um, At that moment is when, you know, I, I tried to show him that I wasn't trying anything funny, so I just showed him my hands. And he just caught this pistol, started firing. Reyes was shot in the arms, hip, and stomach. He and the other young men sued. There was so much discovery done when it comes to, you know, the way that they even trained the troopers in Jersey how to profile minorities. Um, from way back, you know, it, it was bigger than just two bad troopers. It was a whole system. 
The Federal Department of Justice investigated the state police. They sued New Jersey for targeting black drivers on the turnpike and conducting unconstitutional stops and searches. New Jersey agreed to reforms that would be supervised by a federal monitor. But those revelations never triggered any kind of review or even questioning of what happened in the Asada Shakur case. It's that one piece of the conversation, of the discourse, that is always left out. Jason Williams is a professor of criminology in the Justice Studies Department at Montclair State University in New Jersey. Right, um, because again, when it comes to talking about police overreach, brutality, right, malpractice and so forth against Black Americans, the conversation has always been sort of met with a sense of suspicion. And so... It bewilders me um, why that wasn't even part of the discussion way back then. In fact, Williams points out, Black drivers complained for years about being pulled over on the turnpike for no reason, long before the shooting in 1973. And Asada was living underground because she had been targeted by the police, the FBI's COINTELPRO, the national program that was later found to be unconstitutional. When unpacking this, we have to talk about the overreach of the state, right, that was associated with her um, lived experience and, and frankly, her, her existence. You know, she was on a run. She was a target. You only have to conclude that that had an impact to some degree on how that stop went. May Jackson lives in Yonkers with her daughter in an old Victorian filled with antiques. She's been a lifelong activist for racial justice. She says it began in 1955 with the murder of Emmett Till. I'm in a classroom, fourth grade. We were not that far from where Emmett Till's body was pulled from the river. His death had such an impact on my generation. He was young enough for us to identify with him. You know, he could have been a playmate. In the 1960s, she worked for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and later co-founded the Third World Women's Alliance. May wasn't a Black Panther, but she knew Asada. I don't have a position Mm -hmm. on, well, she did the right thing, she did the wrong thing. She did what any slave would do. If you're not free, Mm -hmm. you can't make a judgment. I don't make a judgment call. That's how she decided to deal with whatever she was dealing with. I'm there to support her as a Black person, as a Black woman, you know. I didn't have to agree with her tactics, That's you know. May was dedicated to nonviolent organizing, but she understood the need for armed self-defense. You're shooting Black children down in the back. You're breaking into people's homes and threatening their family members. You're ruining people's lives. That's why you had a Black Liberation Army. Mm-hmm. Now you can ask me, was it necessary? Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Because people get tired of seeing their children gunned down and nothing is done. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai.
Special thanks to Tracy Hunt and Nancy Solomon for bringing us their reporting. David Norville produced our segment with Raul Peck. Mixing this week by Mike Kutchman. Our team also includes Karen Froman, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Jared Paul, Suzanne Gaber, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Happy New Year, everybody.